want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to episode one of the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. As the inaugural episode of the DIY Investing Podcast, I must begin with a very provocative statement. Everything you think you know about investing is based upon a lie. Let me repeat that. Everything you think you know about investing is based upon a lie. So perhaps if you're a longtime student of value investing, this won't be true, as you've already discovered the numerous myths that abound as truth in the mainstream media about investing. However, for most of you, if you read CNBC, listen to other financial podcasts, or read financial blogs, you likely have accepted a bunch of information to be true, which simply isn't based in reality. Today's show will focus on busting the myth on one of the most pervasive maxims of the mainstream financial media, that stocks are riskier than bonds. I have no doubt that unless it's the first time you've ever heard anything about investing that you've heard this statement. What I have to tell you today is that not only is this false, stocks are not riskier than bonds, the opposite is in fact true. Bonds are, in most situations, riskier than stocks. We're going to dive deep into this idea of the relative risk between stocks and bonds, but before we do, I want to highlight some similar investing assumptions and statements which you've probably been told. Stocks are risky. False. It's true sometimes, but it depends. It depends upon price. Bonds are safe. False. Sometimes, again, it depends upon the situation. Stocks are more volatile than bonds, therefore they have more risk. False. Stocks do tend to be more volatile, but that doesn't mean that they are riskier. In order to have higher returns, you have to take more risk. False. One of the most important decisions you make is deciding upon your asset allocation between stocks and bonds. False. This is because to increase your returns, you need to increase your exposure to stocks, but to become more conservative, you need to increase your exposure to bonds. False. So now that I've broken the ice, it's time to dive in and learn how these false ideas reached the point where they are now seen as near universal truths. The outline of the rest of the show will be like this. First, we'll discuss the history of the idea that stocks are riskier than bonds. This section will mainly be discussing what's known as the capital asset pricing model and why it's wrong. Second, we'll brainstorm a definition of risk which you can use as the foundation for your investing. And third, we're going to sum it all back up so that you can begin to make better investing decisions. Okay, so the capital asset pricing model or and we're going to discuss beta and volatility. So first, 
why is it that stocks are defined as risky? To understand this, we need to understand the mainstream definition of investment risk. So Burton Malkiel, in his book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, from 1973, defines risks as, and I quote, investment risk then is the chance that expected security returns will not materialize, and in particular, that the securities you hold will fall in price. Thus, financial risk has generally been defined as the variance or standard deviation of returns, end quote. Now, definitions will vary slightly, but the plain English version of this definition is that the more volatile an asset is, that is, the larger the changes in its stock price or bond price, the riskier that asset is. So this immediately presents a problem. The standard deviation of a security, which could be stocks or bonds, increases when price changes occur either in the negative or the positive direction. The problem becomes evident when you talk about the realistic effects of this. So for my first example, let's say you have two companies, Amazon and Ford. You can buy shares in both companies. So both companies have a stock price of $100. In one year's time, let's assume that Amazon's stock price has doubled and is now worth $200 per share, whilst Ford's stock price has declined by 5% to $95 per share. Under this scenario, the standard deviation or stock beta or volatility, whatever you want to call it, of Amazon is much higher than the volatility of Ford because it's changed in price by 100%, while Ford's price only changed by 5%. So under the capital asset pricing model, it would say that Amazon was a riskier stock to own than Ford. This is in spite of the fact that Amazon gave you a 100% gain well, Ford lost 5% of your money. So the lesson from this is that only negative changes in price should ever be considered when determining risk. If the stock price is going up and making you money, why does that equal risk? Under that definition, I want risk. However, all that highlights is that the definition of risk is flawed. Okay, so now into our second example. In this scenario, imagine we have only one company. In this case, Apple Computer. Apple is currently the most profitable and largest company in the US stock market. I'm going to use round numbers for this example, so understand that these numbers won't necessarily match exactly with the current market. At the time I'm recording this episode, Apple stock is trading for approximately $100, $140 per share. Yahoo Finance shows that Apple currently has a beta of 1.44, or 44% higher volatility than the stock market. Under the capital asset pricing model, the volatility of the stock market is assumed to equal a beta of 1. So, in this case, a stock that has a higher volatility than 1 is more risky, and a stock that has a lower volatility than 1 is less risky. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of how to calculate beta because this, that skill is absolutely useless to you as a value investor. However, one of the key aspects to understand is how the calculation of beta works. One of the key aspects is that a large drop in the stock price of a stock will increase its beta because its volatility has supposedly increased. 
Therefore, by the definition of the capital asset pricing model, if the stock price of Apple fell 50% from $140 per share to $70 per share, it would become a riskier investment. Now, logically, this makes absolutely no sense. As a value investor, if you are a net buyer of stocks, you want to buy shares of a stock at the lowest price you can because you're trying to buy at a discount to intrinsic value. So before we get confused, a quick definition of intrinsic value is the total value of all future cash flows of a business. This value does not change in relation to stock price. It changes purely in relation to fundamentals. So regardless of what the intrinsic value of Apple stock is, Apple stock will be a better buy at $70 per share than at $140 per share because you're going to be able to buy twice as many shares for the same amount of money. You see, that's a key statement though, all else equal, because it assumes that the change in price of the stock was not due to a change in the fundamentals of the underlying business. This assumption, though, is true for most short-term stock price changes. There's no way that the fundamentals of a business are changing every single day, every single moment, which is when you see the stock price changes in the stock market, that's the implication, is that you have a constantly fluctuating, fluctuating fundamental business. That's simply not true. Now, there are cases when the fundamentals of a business change to a large degree, and you'll see large stock price adjustments, but that's not the case for every single change in stock price. So it's quite possible that you could have the stock price of a company drop by 50%, and yet the value of the company hasn't changed one bit. So let's take Let's go a little deeper in this example. So if, for example, the intrinsic value of Apple today was $100 per share, I'm not saying it is, but let's assume so for this example. It's currently trading at $140. So compared to $100 per share, it would be 40% overvalued. If instead it dropped to 50% to buy 50% tomorrow down to $70 per share, $70 is 30% below $100. So it's now 30% undervalued. So it went from being a bad buy to a good buy. So the lesson to take away from all this is that buying a stock at a lower price means it's less risky, not more risky as the capital asset pricing model would suggest. So I've talked a little bit about the capital asset pricing model. So I want to help you further understand why it's flawed. And to do that, we need to look at the assumptions behind the model. And so a general basis of how logic works is you always need to examine your assumptions because you can get bad results from bad assumptions. But if you have good assumptions and you follow the logic clearly, you're going to end up with good results. So your assumptions matter. If the assumptions are bad, the model will be bad. So the capital asset pricing model assumes, number one, that there's no transaction costs. So to buy or sell a stock, you pay no commission. There's no bid or ask price spread, which means that, you know, the people that are buying the stock don't have to pay a little bit more than the fair than the trading value of that price because the sellers want to trade it at the exact same price. This is not always true. In function, there's usually a gap between the price at which, 
you know, the main group of sellers want to sell at and the main group of buyers want to buy at. And that gap is the bid-ask spread. So that spread causes there to be a little bit of a loss in transaction cost every time you make a transaction. So the first assumption is false. The second assumption is investors can take any position, long or short, in any stock in any size without affecting the market price. Now, there's a lot of innies in there. So that means that all investors can take a gigantic or a small investment into the market, into the stock, without affecting the market price. So when you think about this, what that really means is you're saying that, okay, let's say you have a company that's worth $100 million, okay? So it's got, let's say, a million shares, and they're trading at $100 a share. So the whole company is worth $100 million. Well, you have a hedge fund that wants to buy that company. You know, they want to buy stock in that company because they believe it's a good investment. But their hedge fund is worth $10 billion. Okay, so if they want to take, you know, a $10 million investment into the company, which would just be 0.1% of their portfolio, they would now, they would have to buy 10% of all the shares outstanding. And so the capital asset pricing model is assuming that, assuming they want to do that, they are able to buy 10% of the shares of that stock without changing the market price. In reality, that simply isn't true. If you want to go out and buy 10% of all the shares outstanding on a stock, you are going to change the market price. You're going to increase the price at which that shares are, are trading at. So there is going to be a significant cost to you as you steadily buy more and more shares in that company because you're reducing the amount of other owners that are willing to pay sell it to you. So just the general laws of supply and demand are going to force the market price higher while you're steadily making those purchases. So that assumption is false. Your next assumption is that there's no taxes so that investors don't care whether they're paid in dividends or capital gains from their investments. Well, there are taxes. You know, as many people, you know, to paraphrase the general saying, you know, the only thing that's true is that the only thing that's always true is death and taxes. So we can throw that one out real quick without going in deeper on that. Number four, that investors are risk averse. So that's assuming that, you know, most investors are trying to reduce their risk. They want as little risk as possible. Now, smart investors certainly want as little risk as possible. So that's not a bad idea of an assumption. You know, most people are going to want to have less risk, but there's definitely people out there that like risk. You know, a lot of times traders fit this mantra perfectly because what they're willing to do is they're going to go into a stock and, you know, they like the ride, they like the, the thrill of seeing that price change and making that money. It's it's really like the gambler's instinct. And so you're going to see this um, a lot of times with people who are speculating in options or speculating in trades, um, or even just most people um, who don't know what they're doing, they might not be very risk averse in practice. And so this assumption, while it's a nice idea, fails in reality. The fifth assumption is that investors share a common time horizon. So that means that every investor is investing on the same same time horizon. So that means that all the investors out there, let's say the time horizon is, you know, 10 years. You know, we're all investing for 10 years. We're all evaluating every single one of our investments on a 10-year time frame. So this is not true simply when you look at demographics. Okay. That's one example. You have people who are 25 years old and they're investing and you have people that are 65 years old that are investing. They have different time horizons. 
a 25-year-old is investing for at least 40 years until they even reach 65. Well, a 65-year-old is, you know, investing for the next 10, 20, or 30 years, or maybe even five years, depending upon their projected lifespan. So that's one way that the time horizons aren't the same. The other is, is not every investor has the same time horizon because their strategies are based upon different ones. So as a value investor, you're looking to buy stocks for the long term and hold them for the long term and make your money off the business. And so you might have a time horizon of decades. Well, a stock trader might have a time horizon of one day or 10 minutes or two hours or maybe a week. And so they're looking at a really short time horizon. So when they make investment decisions, it's based upon this short time horizon. Or you might have momentum investors who are looking to invest at, you know, as a momentum of a stock rises. So they might be investing on this range of weeks, months, or a couple years. So clearly there's investors have different time horizons, and this causes variations in the way that they value stocks. Um, the next assumption is that investors view stocks only in mean variance space. So they're all using an optimi- this optimization model. So this means that you know, the value of the returns is based upon their variation from the mean. This is goes back to this volatility aspect so that people are managing their investments based upon volatility. Well, I ignore volatility when I'm making my decisions because volatility doesn't affect a long-term investor. The amount that the stock price changes in the next 5, 10, or 20 um, days is irrelevant when I'm buying a stock to own it for the next 50 years. So that, that's one thing that we can throw out there. Uh, the, never one, the next one is number seven, investors control risk through di- diversification. So this goes back, and I'm going to paraphrase a quote from Warren Buffett. And he says essentially that diversification is only needed for those that don't know what they're doing. So this idea is, is that for a lot of people, diversification is recommended because by diversifying, by owning a lot of different stocks, a lot of different bonds, you're able to reduce the risk that any one investment is bad. Well, that's, that has value, especially if you, you know, aren't looking at each of your investments. But if you are carefully evaluating, carefully using fundamental analysis and the aspects of value invest, investing to make your investments, having less stocks, but that are all good investments goes against diversification, but you're still controlling your risk. By ensuring that every stock you buy is bought under intrinsic value, you can control your risk. So the next one is all assets, including human capital, can be bought and sold freely in the market. Well, this one's not true, pretty simply. Um, Not everything is up for sale. Not all land is up for sale. Not all companies are up for sale at all times. Some things aren't liquid. Um, Human capital... Not everyone is selling their time for money. Not everyone is willing to um, allow their expenditures to be up for grabs at any point in time. So it's simply not true. It's a nice idea. You might have a lot of stocks that are freely available in the market or a lot of bonds that are freely available in the market, but other assets like IP, you know, rights to music, um, rights to um, Joe Schmo working at your plant for the next week, not all of those can be freely bought and sold in the market. Some can, but not all of them. 
And the last general assumption that I have here is that investors can lend and borrow at the risk-free rate. So the risk-free rate is generally understood to be the rate at which government bonds from the U.S. government um, are selling. So U.S. Treasuries is the the risk-free rate because it's assumed that the U.S. government can never default on their loans. Um, One, that's a bad assumption. But before we go into that, not all investors can lend and borrow at the rate of the U.S. government. Most investors nearly all investors are a worse risk than the U.S. government. Um, And so they can't borrow at that rate. And they're also not able to lend at that rate because they can't always get that exact rate in their investments. A lot of times they can. A lot of times there's the liquidity in the government um, rate, uh, in the government bonds, but not always. So the final lesson for this section is to understand the relationship between risk and return. So the standard maxim I stated at the beginning was that in order to increase your return, you have to take on more risk. Let's think about this logically. Does that make any sense at all? If I give you two fictional investments, you can either invest in Widget Corporation or Services Corporation. Both companies are asking you for a $1,000 investment. However, Widget Corporation has a 1% chance of going bankrupt each year for the next five years, while Services Corporation has a 10% chance of going bankrupt each year for the next five years. Nine times out of 10, which investment do you think is riskier, and is that the same company which will likely leave you with the best return on your investment? It's quite obvious that the Services Corporation is the riskier investment. An investor in the Widget Corporation has a much better chance of ending up with a positive investment, let alone allowing you to avoid owning a company that has a 10% chance of going bankrupt every year. So notice how none of this discussion of risk had anything to do with the volatility of the share price. Now that leads us into our next section, brainstorming a definition of risk. So a definition of risk necessarily requires derivation from our definition of an investment which is itself based upon Benjamin Graham's definition of an investment operation. So Benjamin Graham is the father of value investing, and along with his co-author, David Dodd, they attempted to give a definition of an investment in their 1934 book, Security Analysis, which I cannot recommend enough. You'll be able to find a link on on my website, diyinvesting.org, slash episode one, in the show notes. So I quote their definition. An investment operation is one which, upon thorough analysis, promises safety of principle and a satisfactory return. Operations not meeting these requirements are speculative. End quote. So if an investment operation requires safety of principle and achieving a satisfactory return, then our definition of investment risk needs to take this into account. Investment risk... So here's my definition. Investment risk is the quantifiable chance that one of two scenarios occur. One, loss of principal. Two, failure to achieve a suitable rate of return on your investment. These two scenarios are interrelated. So if a loss of principal occurs, then by definition, you're going to fail to achieve a suitable rate of return on your investment. By this understanding, preventing a loss of principal is a necessary but insufficient condition for achieving a suitable rate of return. Therefore, we can break risk up into two categories. The first is the loss of principal risk, and the second is risk of earning a less than adequate rate of return. So in the loss of principal risk factors, we have first a reduction in the quality of earnings of the company, 
Um, so if the reduction, if the earnings of the company are going down or the quality of the earnings are going down, then you should value the company less. So you would lose some principal. Um, or there could be a material reduction in the long-term earnings capability of the company. So if they're earning less money, then that should they should have a lower value on the company. And third, a liquidity event could occur leading to bankruptcy of the company. And then the equity of the company, you know, the stock becomes worthless. So that would cause you to lose your principal. Okay, now let's look at some factors that um, could cause you to earn less than an adequate rate of return. So there's quite a lot of these. Well, the first thing to understand is that because not losing your principal is a prerequisite for earning an adequate return, all of the risk factors related to loss of principal are true as well for earning an adequate return. However, there is also additional factors. So first is purchase price above fair value. So if you buy a stock above its fair value or intrinsic value, then you're going to earn less than an adequate rate of return because that intrinsic value has your adequate rate of return invested into it. So it's built into your calculation of value is your built-in rate of return. Um, the second piece would be an improper calculation of the intrinsic value. So you might be using wrong assumptions. This can be usually be found in using earnings growth rates or assuming that earnings grow at a, at a, at a rate for longer than they're going to. Another risk is price risk. So if your stock price at the date of sale is below fair value, this could reduce the amount of return you have. Now, as a value investor, you should be looking to hold stocks for long term. So you can mitigate this risk by making the holding period as long as possible. Now, the ideal holding period for a stock is preferably forever. You want to make your money when you own companies based upon the actual earnings of the company and not on trading stocks. So therefore, you could hold it forever or you know, essentially hold it until death and pass it on to your heirs. So the next risk is defining what a proper satisfactory rate of return is. If you have a bad definition, if you're, if you're choosing the wrong rate of return to target that's not actually helpful for you, then you're not going to actually achieve the return that you really need to achieve. So in the words of Sir John Templeton, and I quote, for all long-term investors, there is only one objective, maximum total real returns after taxes, end quote. So what do we learn from this? Your returns need to be taken into account after taxes, but they also need to be real returns. Real returns are returns that occur after inflation. So you want both after tax, after inflation returns. To illustrate the inflation aspect, let's say you invest $30,000 today or about what it costs to buy a brand new car and you invest it for 15 years. Over the course of 15 years, at the end of 15 years, it becomes $100,000. So that can sound great. You've more than tripled your money from $30,000 to $100,000. But if at the end of the 15 years, a brand new car now costs $200,000 so that you're only able to buy half of a new car due to some rampant inflation, you've lost real return. You've lost money. That's a big risk. So this is where bonds really struggle. They might show positive nominal returns, which means before inflation returns, but they might show negative or even real returns because they failed to match or beat inflation. So this is where bonds are by no means safer than stocks. So how does this understanding of risk allow us to evaluate whether stocks or bonds are riskier? One of the key aspects to understand is that volatility alone is a bad definition of risk. 
Stocks tend to be more volatile than bonds, that's true. However, stocks do a great job at beating inflation over long periods of time. Bonds, on the other hand, have a bad history. They have a much lower rate of return over long periods of time. The reason for this is fairly simple. A corporate bond and a corporate stock are both investments in a company. However, only stocks provide the upside for growth and earnings, and companies work each and every day to make more money than the previous year. Think about the company that you work for. This constant effort to be better allows your dividends to increase every year. When you own a major corporation, you've hired tens of thousands of people, employees, to spend 40 hours a week trying to find ways to make you more money. Meanwhile, if you own a bond of the same corporation, your rate of payment is set in stone. It's not going to budge regardless of how much you'd like it to increase. So this is the core reason that stocks tend to outperform bonds over the long term. By outperform, I mean that stocks have a larger after-tax, after-inflation return. And based upon our original definition, that's the purpose of an investment. It's also the exact opposite of risk. Because stocks in the aggregate have the ability to increase their earnings and dividends over time, they are usually a better investment and therefore they pose less risk. The final ingredient of risk is price. Price is all important to a value investor. That's the number one thing to remember as a value investor. The price affects everything. There is a price at which bonds are a better investment than stocks. And there is a price where stocks are a better investment than bonds. A high price equals risk because the higher the price you pay, the greater the chance there is that you will lose principal. As we said earlier, your first goal is to protect your principal. Therefore, it's not as simple to say that stocks are riskier than bonds or bonds are riskier than stocks in all cases. While stocks might in general be better long-term investments, this is only true when prices are rational and low on stocks. My current guess is that both stocks and bonds are extremely overpriced and we're in the midst of another asset bubble. Okay, so final summary here. An investment promises both safety of principle and a satisfactory return. Therefore, investment risk is the quantifiable chance that one of two scenarios incur. You either one, lose principle, or two, failure to achieve a suitable rate of return on your investment. Therefore, determining the risk of an investment is not something which can be easily defined by a single mathematical number like stock volatility or beta. Determining the risk inherent in an investment requires in-depth, fundamental analysis of the specific earnings capability of a business. The mainstream media hates this definition precisely because it means that investing is not as easy as they want to make it sound. And if it's not as easy, they can't get you to give them their money as quickly. Proper value investing is going to require some work. It's going to require some understanding of how businesses operate and how companies make profit. Understanding that, it's a bit more complicated than simply choosing an asset account allocation between stocks and bonds is only the first step. Stocks and bonds must be bought with the intention of protecting principal and receiving an adequate return on investment. In general, it's easy to achieve, easier to achieve this goal with stocks because the cash payments you receive can grow. 
Bonds, however, struggle to beat inflation in our current day and age. This can always change, however. And this is why I say that stocks are better than bonds. That's why it's important as a value investor to understand what your target rate of return is and to be able to evaluate the price you need to pay in order to achieve that return. Final takeaway. Take what you hear in the mainstream investing media with a grain of salt. The mainstream media likes to promote stock traders and not value investing. Stocks are most definitely not riskier than bonds. And the capital asset pricing model that this idea is based upon is absolute nonsense. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you liked this content and found it valuable, please subscribe and consider sharing it with your friends so they can learn from it as well. If you'd like to find the show notes, you can find them on the website for the podcast, which is diyinvesting.org slash episode one. That's diyinvesting.org slash episode one. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.